You are listening to the Swim Not Sink Leadership Podcast, the show for first-time leaders, for that moment in your career when the buck stops with you. This is your window into the world of how to lead successfully. Now, over to your host, James Nagel. So welcome to the latest episode of the Swim Not Sink Leadership Podcast, the show for first-time leaders. I'm your host, James Nagel, and my guest today is Elio Leonisetti. Elio was always a high flyer. For example, when he was the head of Ben Kieser, Germany, he was too young to sign the official documents as he was not yet 30. And he hasn't slowed down. He was part of the team behind the success of Rekka Ben Kieser before taking CEO roles at EMI and Igloo. He now pursues a slash career, non-executive director slash non-profit work slash investor in tech startups. But there's a new twist. In 2019, he co-founded The Craftery, backing the world's boldest insurgent challenger brands in the consumer goods space, what he calls capital with a cause. Now, back in the day, Elio was my boss's boss's boss. So it's great to turn the tables and to be the one asking the questions for a change. Hi, Elio. Hello. Hi, James. As I said in the introduction, you, you move fast in your career and you were in fact a general manager before you were even 30. But I'm sure that came with its challenges. So if you look back on those early leadership roles, what was maybe the most formative? I would probably point uh, to, which just coincidentally I would say are uh, my first general manager and my second general manager job. Um, so the first was in Germany. I was 29 years old. Um, and... The challenge, I would say, was mostly about understanding the responsibilities that the general manager has to the company that employs him or her as much as it has to the rest of the employees that are, you know, in his responsibility and his unit. And so to kind of find that balance between these two directions. Um, and my second uh, was in Italy. It was a much larger organization, maybe four or five times bigger than, than Germany. But importantly, also included the whole supply chain and the various other departments. So it was not just a commercial unit. It was a full-fledged operation to a manufacturing plant and so on. And the big learning experience there is um, really to reconcile the different nature expectations and motivational sort of standards that you need to have with different constituent parts of your organization. And of course, you know, uh, blue collar in a manufacturing plant have a system of, uh, let's say, incentives and, and uh, sort of standards that are different than the one that maybe are in your marketing or, or sales department. However, there is a unifying line, which is the culture. And so to you know, rebalance those different elements on one end, you unified culture, and on the other one, different system of motivation and incentives was, was a challenge. Okay, so I can imagine a young guy in a, in a meeting room with the union officials, etc. Yeah, there were, there were challenges. You know, did you have any support at that time, mentors, or who, who did you rely on? Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, the, the support system isn't fundamental parts of a successful first experience into general management. Um, and I would say that it's a support system that is both in terms of your team. I would say the most important thing is that. So you need to have a team of, um, you know, your C-suite, you know, your, your directors 
that have to do two things. One have to have the skills and competence and capabilities, you know, to do their job. But importantly, they have to be willing to be working for you and for the company. And if there is not that sort of uh, reciprocal reliance and desire, it, it, it creates really some weak flanks that, you know, over time might, might sink you. So the first is your team. Uh, but importantly, also somebody that has done it before. So I think that, you know, your swim, not sink um, sort of approach is very useful in that sense because you always have to rely on people that have done it before that you somehow respect for a reason or two. Um, in that specific case, I had two people that have both done my job in uh, Benkizer at that time before me. A uh, very different individual. One was Erhard Schövel, German guy with a very sort of a, local experience, I would say, for many years in Germany, but, but long and deep. And the other one was Bart Becht, who was the president of the division at that time. And he had a more international experience, Procter & Gamble background, similar to mine. So more similar to my experience um, and added, you know, less. And both of them actually have done the job of general manager of Italy before me. And I could rely on their uh, expertise and, and mentorship. There's one thing I want to pick up on what you said earlier. It was there's a point when you're the leader, when you're no longer just representing yourself because you may move on in your position, but you're representing somehow the co the company or the corporation. That's and right. You have to think of the longer term. And I think I remember my own first experience of that. And it's, uh, it's quite strange. In fact, <laughs> that, that you're, you're talking on behalf of, uh, intangible body. That's right. Um, so thanks, thanks for bringing that one up. Now let's move, move a bit forward. Um, as I say, you move fast. So, you were the leader young, and then you've now appointed, selected, identified, developed many leaders through your time. What is it that you look for? I mean, what are your biases when you have somebody in front of you? Right, Chips, let me correct you. I have no bias whatsoever, ever. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, no, I do have my biases, like, like all of us. Um, and I think that the most important thing is the awareness of that bias and the uh, you know, rational decisions or whether they are um, appropriate uh, or, or not. So my biases are for people that have uh, relentless intellectual curiosity. So that, that I would say is number one. I've seen that those that have that, that trait find much easier to learn fast and to adapt fast. And, and learning and adapting, of course, to, to significant um, skills um, in, in, uh, in those situations. So intellectual curiosity, number one. Uh, I would say optimism in leadership, number two. The, the way that I look at it is that an optimist always look up from the current situation. So it creates a positive gap that then, you know, if he's intelligent, finds a way to close. And therefore, the net result of this is growth. A pessimist always sees the negative gap, things that can go wrong first, um, and therefore play in the fence. And there is no growth when you play in the fence. So um, optimists tend to be growth leaders, growth of people and growth of business. Uh, pessimists tends to be negative, uh, defensive, if you want, leaders. That does not mean that you must not prepare for the negative scenario. Of course, that's part of the, of the game, but it shouldn't be your first line of thought. So optimism in, in leadership is number two. And, um, and then I would say definitely people that have, um, that are excited by their capacity to develop talent. So leaders of talent, but not just as in good bosses, 
people that truly intend uh, as part of their job to make their people better, possibly better than yourself, so that, you know, when, and, and I've been fortunate enough to see people that, you know, work with me or for me that are now, you know, general manager of this, CEO of that, president of that, and you truly get a kick at seeing that uh, sort of success of, of the people that work with you. And when you have somebody who you see has the potential to be even better than you, let's say, which is quite an interesting perspective, are you explicit with them? Would you say it as much as, yeah. you know, I think you've, you can go all the way. What do you see you can add to them beyond uh, identifying it? The main hurdle that I've seen for people with potential and sometimes they didn't make it is their own awareness of their own potential. So there are people that for a hundred of reasons are super good, but they don't think they are. They are focused on the reasons for not succeeding. Uh, sometimes it's a personal uh, sort of um, mindset that, you know, goes back to, you know, who, who this person is. Uh, sometimes it's um, avoidance of risk. So smart people, but with not a very strong propensity to take risks. Um, and so what I can do when I have, you know, found myself in those situations is to spend time making that person aware of uh, the capacity that, you know, I or other people in the organization uh, identified and to give them the self-confidence to take risks and move forward. Now, there are, of course, risks associated with that, which is sometimes that means that that person failed and therefore you burned um you know, the candle. Uh, however, um, you know, all considered, if you are truly believing that, you know, there is potential in there, I think it's a it's a worth, um, you know, sort of exercise to make. I really want to explore the, that question of risk because I, I saw it in my, my own career. There's an element where you want to get to a position, you get there, and then it's more about conserving rather than, okay, what's next and how do I do it better or whatever. Now, you worked in a number of corporate environments, as I said, you know, ranging from medicines to, you know, frozen foods to, to music. I mean, you, you've, really, you've really worked with a lot. Passing through toilet book cleaner, skin care, and laundry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, a long list. And, and staying on that whole theme of risk, now you're working with people who founded their own businesses. Are they made of different stuff? Is it a different profile or are there commonalities? I would say that the, the, the majority are commonalities in the sense that people that have, you know, a, a successful fast career in corporates also have to be entrepreneurial about the way that they manage their career. Um, but I think that there are probably two big differences. One goes back to this point about the propensity to risk. Corporate jobs tend to be less risky. You know, you are covered, you know, above and, and below, your people beside you, you know, and if you fail, frankly, all it could mean is a, either your promotion is delayed six months or you find another job somewhere else. Uh, you know, entrepreneurship, have no, no safety net if you are a founder. And if you fail, you fail. I mean, you've lost yours and other people's money. You know, it's a big dent into your own self-confidence and credibility and so you need to have a second time entrepreneur needs to have, you know, double up on propensity to risk and, and self-confidence. So, so th th that propensity to risk and, and willingness to, to 
you know, give your all is, 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 is a different profile. And I would say that the, the other profile is, and I have recently opportunity to discuss this with somebody who really made the jump. And to a certain extent, I made the jump when I was 52, two years ago with the creation of Craftery. Um, you know, it's, it's a startup of, 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 you know, good size, I would say, but, you know, in a way, and, you know, it's, it's a startup. Uh, but somebody else that has done it in, in a more traditional way to really go, um, you know, ground up. And I was saying the big difference is when you are an entrepreneur, you have a group of people that maybe are whatever, five or 10 group of people that you start this initiative with. You are sharing with them the whole process of building. And so you're not anymore the boss of a marketing group or general manager or, you know, finance team where you have to develop your talent and grow them according to standards that have been set before you of which you have been part and then now that you are imparting into others you are setting those standards and so those people that you choose to be with you in that journey are effectively your co-founder whether you call them or not co-founders they're effectively your co-founder so you need to be willing to delegate 100 percent of something you need to open up you know your your your, your hands and share parts of the dream that others need to build. So they are, they are your co-builder. And that is a, a very different skills that people have or do not have. If you are a founder and you want to keep everything in your hand up to when the company is 100 million, you'll never get to 100 million. If you're a founder and you're willing to open up very early and, and share with few people certain element of that building project, then you might get a chance to grow fast. Um, so that capacity, you do not need it in corporate. In corporate, people give it to you unless you are the CEO of the global organization and then, you know, somehow you need to, to find your way. But up to that point is, is the CEO or the structure or your boss that gives you bits. So you receive it. You don't give it. As a founder, you need to give it. So beyond what you've said, when you meet people maybe from a corporate environment, considering the move, considering the transition who have the street smarts, who have the idea, the germ of an idea, what do you advise them in terms of what they need to consider to make that transition successfully? I want to go back to one of the things I said before. They need to know that they have enough self-aware and self-confidence to get one or two hits because the likelihood that you get whack on your head a couple of times is very high. So somebody who is prone to retrench after the first lap, that's not a good choice. <laughs> Uh, so the first thing is, is self-confidence and awareness of the capacity to push through the hurdles that no doubt will, will be encountered. Um, and, and the other one is sort of vision uh, to, to a dream or to, to a goal um, that you need to self-motivate yourself to. So you need to, to plant the flag and to allocate the resources to achieve that flag and to motivate others to be with you. But that, but that is all you. You know, again, in corporate, somebody plants a flag, somebody gives you the resources, and you need to motivate the people to you know, work with you on it. Here you plant the flag, see the vision, plant the flag, decide the resources, and motivate the people. And those three things, but different skill set, and each one of us know whether you have all of the three or not. If you don't have all of the three, that's probably not a, not a good step. Yeah, and I've even seen that in my own, uh, on a small scale development as a, as a founder of my own business, that since it's your own vision, it's energizing. 
But I think what you've just said, the thing about the ability to take the hits and to come back from it and not to revert, because many people that I would have seen through my career, when it gets tough, they revert to type, as we would say, or they they put their head down and mm-hmm. think by working harder, they're going to come out of it. And that is, that's rarely the thing that's going to work for you. So maybe to move on at a, maybe a philosophical level on the whole area of sink or swim. And we had talked this in a previous conversation, you know, what's your view on sink or swim and has it evolved through your year, through the years? Let me, let me answer the second first. Yes, it did evolve. I thought that sink or swim was a motivator because I assumed that everyone basically react in the same way to, to that sort of, um, stimulus then i kind of evolved um i think that he has a very important role to play particularly in corporate life because in entrepreneurial life it kind of goes with the it goes with the job description right so you don't have to make it a, a explicit i mean it is implicit to the to being an entrepreneur so staying on the on the corporate side um i think it's a good leadership style but i don't think it's necessarily a good motivators in other words you need to make people believe that it is sink or swim so that they prepare themselves at their best and they train themselves to you know cross the ocean um, uh, swimming. But I think that you need to be you know with your boat um, right behind them, not necessarily telling them to make sure that they don't swim. And so provide a net of support system that if you see that this is happening, there is a system in place to you know push them to to uh, safe ground so i think that the i think that the approach and the belief of sink or swim um allows people to prepare well and therefore it's a good leadership style but it's one part of it the other part that is less obvious and not necessarily said is to be prepared to support at least you know a couple of times i would say to help the person develop yeah, and I guess that's the the bond between a boss and their team if the team feel that the boss has their back. So ho- however it appears in public that that when needed, they will be behind you. So you mentioned at the start of the conversation that you had supporters, you had people who helped you in those early days. So experienced people. Who do you rely on now? Because as you say, at, at the age of 52, you, you embarked on a new journey. And it's, it's got different rules, right, than the corporate game. What, what supports? Um, but I've been um, <clears throat> sort of lucky enough over the last maybe seven, eight years to join very good boards, um, boards made out of people that have great experiences, uh, that have done big things, you know, in, in their lives. And I have developed a sort of a professional and personal relationship with a number of individuals in those boards that I respect uh, their opinion and um, that I look up to in terms of the way that they face challenges and opportunities in lives. And so this network of experienced you know, board members, some of which I got closer to and, and some others less, give me you know, phone calls to make and um, opportunities when we are at boards to say, hey, I got these things in my mind. What do you think? So I would say that probably my my main support system at this point in time re- re- sort of relies on the more or less generalized knowledge and experience of this group of people. 
Yeah, it comes back to network and how energizing the diversity of people yeah. can be. I'm going to go for my bonus question now, Elio. Okay. So I, I'm, I'm not looking for a name and, and, and that's not the purpose. But if I ask you, who was your best boss? If you look back through all your career, what did they, what did they have and what did you learn from them and maybe, you know, um, replicate or ad- adopt? I'd love to be able to give you a name, but I, I, I don't think I can because I, I do not have that sort of perfect boss. But it's, a, you know, I would say the perfect boss or, you know, the combination of two or three individuals that I had. I think it's very difficult to reconcile the deep human empathy, intelligence in the EQ sense with a very sharp, strategic business um, vision that inspires you. And so ideally what you would want is somebody that when he is dealing with business matters, you go like, wow, this guy has a brain the size of a house and is looking you know, through all of the crap and sees the vision and that's the vision I want to follow because that's the right approach. Data-driven, analytical, sharp, disciplined, scientific, all of that, right? So, but then when you do your performance review, when you are in a difficult situation, like I said before, the sink or swim, when you, you know, when you are in a meeting in which, you know, your credibility is at stake, you want that person to kind of read the room and say that wise phrase that kind of save your ass. And that sort of empathy and emotional intelligence coupled with the you know, inspiring uh, business leadership, it's very rare to find. And I would say, you know, normally, thankfully, you always have more than one boss or reference. If it's even when you're a CEO, you have a board and the board is made out of whatever, 10 people. Um, And when you are, you know, in corporate, you have two or three bosses. So I would say, look, if you can, for a combination of people, if you cannot find it in one, that provides you these two elements because, you know, we all need both. Truly. I love that answer. And I'm glad you didn't give me one person because that's very narrow and limiting and, and everybody will go, yeah, yes. But it gives me a thought as well that we will all have a tendency to either have the big brain or the empathy. And, and it's very rare to combine both. And if you read LinkedIn, you may, you know, end up beating yourself because I'm not as good as, you know, the comparison thing. I think it's a bit that self-awareness that, you know, you know where, where you can help. And frankly, for the team that, that you work with, they have to complement maybe what you don't have. Get, get that other support else, elsewhere. Uh, I think it's a, a very fair answer. That's been great. I've asked you the bonus question. I mean, what I took out was the propensity to risk and the ability to take the hits. You know, among all the things you said, I think they're very relevant and, and no more so than, <laughs> than in the environment uh, we work in. So any parting advice for, for somebody maybe taking over as a first-time leader? Yes, I, I like to close on the things that maybe I said at the beginning for your first question, which is really first-time leader, let's say, first-time general manager, first-time leader in general in corporate world means that for the first time, it's almost like you're negotiating your contract from the other side. And so you, you spend many years in which, you know, you negotiate your contract trying to get more money or more bonus or, you know, more benefits or something. 
And then as a general manager, you're now negotiating, you know, the contract of the people that work for you, or you negotiate the rent of, you know, your, you know, building, or you, you know, create contracts with others and retailers that, you know, impact your PL. For the first time, make your, you know, effort explicit about thinking on what's the best for the company that you represent, because in that moment, you are an officer of a unit, a company. And that company unit's uh, health depends on your capacity to think with that company objective in mind. And, and, and if you're not able to really split, it's a little bit schizophrenic, but in a, in a positive way, if you're not able to split um, your capacity to both seek the benefit of the unit you represent and, you know, an hour later, uh, you know, to represent your own benefit in, in a different situation, but to be very determined about that, you know, different roles, both of them super important that you have, then, you know, that experience might not be as fruitful as it could be. On my side, it's been a pleasure being the one asking the questions, and I think you've done very well. All right. So thank you, Elio. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the Swim Not Sink Leadership Podcast. Subscribe at swimnotsink.com forward slash podcast.